Steph's mm. one of the few superstars in the league that moves well off the ball at an elite level. It just doesn't happen these days much. And and we tried to, I mean, I'll pose this question to you. Name me, name me, you know, five guard, three guards that move like him off the ball in the last 10 years. I can name two straight away. JJ Reddick. Okay, JJ Reddick. JJ yeah. Reddick, Ray Allen. Ray, Ray Allen. Allen, yeah. Reggie Miller, 10, 15 years ago. Yep. And then Rip Hamilton, right? Okay, so they're the yep. guys. They're the guys that I would name as well. The 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 one thing about those guys is none of them are point guards. Um, he has an ability to handle the ball as much as you need him to, but then off the ball, he's okay giving the ball up. And now there is that confidence that he knows he's going to get it back, which does play into part. But today's superstars need the ball. There's there's not many superstars that you can sell the dream of. Hey, go run off fifteen screens to get your shot up. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Like guys, guys are like, hey. Let me get the ball. Let me get in my bag, and I want to create the assist, or I want to create the stat, or I want to create the the score. I want to be involved in it. Whereas Steph's more than happy to move off the ball at an elite level, and that's hard to do. Um, and I commend him for that because he's he's one of the few superstars that will give the ball up to to potentially not get it back. That was Andrew Bogut talking about Steph Curry. If you don't know Andrew Bogut has a new podcast out. I recommend it, man, because he is one of the more candid, intelligent former players out there speaking on stuff. He's not going to pull any punches. He's got a unique perspective. And uh, again, Bogut, new podcast. And he was on talking about Steph Curry and his experience with this Warriors dynasty. And obviously he made, made the great point of Steph Curry is the rare superstar. Like, if you think about it, superstars basically don't move without the ball, right? And in part because they almost always have the ball. And, you know, there's various reasons for that and why Steph is so special in that way. But again, it's the environment that you're molded in, right? And it starts at the club and AAU level where most of these guys that are superstars in the NBA now the ball was placed in their hands at a very young age. Let's be clear. Some of the talent, some of this talent is God-given. And even at eight and nine years old, these kids were far superior than their peers. So they've had the ball since they started playing basketball, right? And that's just an environment. It was never nurtured. They never were off the ball, right? And so it makes sense. And now you look at Steph and how he had much more of a meteoric rise to stardom, to superstardom, where... Steph, he wasn't so elite at a young age and at the club level in high school where the offense was built around him and he had the ball all the time. So I think he had to develop that just by environment. He wasn't always on the ball. And then the other point that I would make is, who do you think Steph, as a kid, watched all the time? Del Curry, his father, right? And Del, if you don't know, if you're, if you're a little bit younger, was an off-ball shooting guard. And he had a wetter too, make no mistake about it. It's in the family, but he didn't, he wouldn't, he didn't play on ball. So I think Steph had this unique perspective of basketball where one, he, he wasn't so dominant at a young age that he was just accustomed to having the ball all the time. And then two, he also understood the value in playing off of it because he watched his dad do it for 15 seasons in the NBA. And now you, what you formed is just a monster, 
a very unique beast, a player that's changed the game. And I say all that to say that, yeah, he he hung another 40-piece last night on the Orlando Magic, 10 threes. And I know that the Warriors, they're not contenders anymore right now, for now, right? So if you haven't been watching them or paying attention, I'm here to tell you the chef is back. Let me tell you, I mean, maybe you thought that he, he was washed now at 32 years old or they're not going to be the same. And you're right, the team is not nearly as dominant. They, they've They've got some pieces in place here, and I think there's reason to be very optimistic if you're a Warrior fan. But Steph, at 32 years old, like you could make the argument he's as good as ever. He might just be now in his prime with this strength and the way he is manipulating defenses. I've never seen him have this balanced of an attack. You know, I think there was a, a period of time where he fell in love with the three ball too much, and so what you'd see is a big switch out on him, and it was kind of predictable. And they knew he wanted to get to his three ball. Now he is playing with these dudes in, out, to the cup. You just don't know. And you see guys off balance, and it's a spectacle. I would expect nothing less than a light show Saturday night when Kevin Durant makes his first appearance at Chase Center. The ground that he broke. I know Warrior fans remember that. They had him out there cutting the ribbon and breaking ground when it was being built in kind of a way of, of nudging Durant to be like, hey, this is your home for good, right? This is, this is your arena. But it didn't work out that way. Durant coming back off of COVID protocol, and you know, I, I think all players like to stick it to their former teams. Steph is getting a lot of publicity. I think, is he leading the league in scoring at this point? Probably after that 40-piece last night. So I think it's going to be a light show. Hopefully the Warriors can make it competitive. They're missing still James Wiseman. I've got a theory on that, that uh, if, you, uh, if you're a patron, you can join me live pregame Saturday where I will, uh, I'll give you my, my thoughts on Wiseman here. He's going to be out another week. So we'll see. We'll see what goes on with that. What else is happening? The G League bubble has begun in Orlando. I, I believe it's in the same facilities that the playoffs were in you know, this summer. And it's good, man. It's good. I like it. I really like it. Now, I know most of you are probably aware of this G League Ignite team where they've got like three of, you know, the top 10 prospects. I won't say top 10. They got two top 10 prospects and they got, they've got a couple first round picks. They got three or four first round picks on this Ignite team. And Jalen Green, Jonathan Kuminga, and there's this Knicks kid. This, who's this Knicks kid? He looks like a bowling ball out there. He's a big kid. Maybe a, uh, what's the dude's name in LA that everybody's gaga over? Horton Jr. Relax, Laker fans. Relax. Like, he's nice, but I, I heard Laker fans talking about, who are they trying to get? I think they were saying they didn't want to put him in a Bradley Beal deal. I was like, relax. Like, it's so funny. We're all guilty of it. Every fan base, how you fall in love with your homegrown talent. And like, look, he's cool and all, but they're, they're treating him as if he's some sort of potential superstar. Let, let's, let's not get carried away. But anyway, yeah, that Knicks kid, he's this big bowling ball of a guard. And so I'm in the middle of doing this breakdown here that, that will be posted on my Patreon, hopefully by Saturday. I've been, I've been putting in the content work, man. So I'm trying to, to balance it out and get stuff out that I, that I need to. But um, it's very clear that Kuminga is the alpha on that team. Now... Most big boards have Jalen Green ahead of Kuminga. And it's just been one game. This is somewhat of a knee-jerk reaction. I understand that. But at first glance, it looks like Kuminga is going to jump Green when this is all said and done and this, this bubble plays out. Just, just based off alpha, having the ball and, and kind of just being the guy. 
And that is, mind you, with a bunch of OGs on the team. You've got Jarrett Jack out there at 37 years old, uh, Amir Johnson. And you know what? I like seeing the OGs out there. Jeremy Lin, eh, a young OG. I don't know, you know. But I like seeing these older NBA vets in mixed into this G League with these young guys because what I think it does is it shows some of these young players there's no shame in playing in this league. I think for years... There's been kind of a stigma attached to going to the G League if you're a young NBA player where it's like you've been demoted. Like, oh, you, you went to the G League? Like, you couldn't hang? You know what I mean? That type of thing. And now when you see someone like a Jared Jack or a Jeremy Lin trying to get back into the league, it shows some of these young dudes like, hey, there's no shame in this. You got to get in. You got to get in where you fit in and you got to take every opportunity. And so now I think that maybe it's being more viewed upon as a proving ground and a place to gain opportunity. And now you're hearing about more young players request to go down there to get that opportunity. So I like what the NBA is doing with the G League and with this Ignite team. And, you know, what they've done is they've really pressed the NCAA to start thinking about paying some of their athletes. That's what's going to happen. You, lo you lose Green, Kuminga. There's a handful of these kids in this G League, and if this keeps on happening, you know, it's going to force the NCAA's hand to come out of pocket. So I'm with it, man. So I was watching Boston Miami last night, and the other day I had talked about Mitchell Robinson and how he was a special defender, a special archetype where he's, a, he's not just a, a rim protector, but he blocks jump shots. And he's able to get out and contest at the three-point line. Another guy that does that is Boucher for the Raptors. And it got me to thinking about, is this going to become a new kind of big? And a new type of defender where you look at how the game is being played now. For instance, last night, the Blazers beat the Sixers. And you go and you look at the box score and you say, well, how did this happen? Right? And you look, you say, okay, well... Everything was even. All the stars kind of gave their normal production, except for the fact that Portland made 17 threes to the Sixers six. So we know that how prolific the three ball is and how it can swing games. And so are we going to start to see more of these kind of hybrid bigs that, you know, they may, they may not be as big and bulky and, and take up as much space in the paint, but they're able to close out to, to weak side corners and close out and, and not just contest three-point shooters, but alter and block jump shooters because you can make the argument like that's going to maybe even be more valuable than traditional rim protection. Who cares if you can guard the post? Can you get out to that weak side corner and alter that shot? It'll be interesting to see moving forward if that's just a trait that gets developed and more and more of these young bigs that, that come up through the system. But yeah, the Boucher kid is nice. And not only is he kind of a freakish shot blocker considering how rail thin he is, he's got a wetter. I, I, I remember early in the season, I was like, yo, he's shooting 40 from three? We'll see if that holds up, right? And here we are 25 games into the season, and he's shooting 44% from three, and he takes a couple a night. So, you know... I don't want to shit on Toronto too bad here. I think they still have, they should have reason for optimism. They have some nice young players. Siakam, I think they're figuring out, isn't that guy. He can't be that number one guy. And I just think that every time I turn on a Raptors game, I see frustration seeping in, particularly with Nick Nurse. Nick Nurse seems 
frustrated. And I think that they're coming to the realization that they're they're good, but they're not good enough, right? A team that's won a, a championship and I think has aspirations of being a, 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 an annual contender, they're not there. The East, has you can make the argument, has gotten stronger at the top and really all the way down, right? The East is, is a little stronger. I don't care about what the records say. Um, if you just watch the games night in and night out, there's more teams in the East that are solid. And so now Toronto finds themselves kind of in the middle of the pack. And I, I, I'm curious to see if they become sellers here soon and kind of retool, because I don't think this is an organization that's going to be content just sniffing around, you know, the bottom seed of the playoffs, especially after they've got a taste of championship glory. So I wonder, you know, they've got some interesting young pieces. I brought, I've just talked about Boucher, um, OG and Anubi, and then Lowry is on that one-year deal. And, you know, I don't know who would go get him, but a one-year deal is always, you can always kind of make room for that somehow, some way, right? It's not too much of a commitment. That leads me into an article that I was reading on The Athletic. I think it was Sam Amik. I don't know how to say his last name, but y'all know who I'm talking about. Um, and he was talking about the trade deadline and, and what's happening and who are going to be the buyers and sellers. And we sit in this weird position here where there's so much parity in the league right now. When you look at the standings, everybody's jumbled up together and separated by just a few games. And what that means is you've got a lot of teams that still have hopes of making the playoffs. And the question is, how many sellers are there going to be this year at the trade deadline? Are there going to be more buyers than sellers? And in the article, the Denver Nuggets were brought up that they are kind of internally becoming impatient with Michael Porter Jr. Now, my concern with Porter Jr. has always been his body. Is he going to hold up the back surgery coming out of Iowa? Um, but I didn't question his game. We know that Mike Malone brought him along very slowly. To me, what I see with Denver is I think there's too many mouths to feed. Like we know Jokic is more than willing to share the ball. I'm not talking about him. He's, he, you know, he's, he's been spectacular. Murray struggled. We know that. But look, Barton's never seen a shot he doesn't like. Millsap, I know he's a vet. He still wants his touches, right? Gary Harris, he still wants some touches. Um, and so it, it's kind of, you know, their depth. That's cool that they have depth. But to me, Michael Porter Jr. is a guy that I think the more opportunity you give him, the better he's going to be and he's going to seize that. And so uh, I, I would, if I was Denver, I would look to empower him more and kind of maybe establish him more as a priority to have him maybe become more consistent and, and, and take more of a step than he's taken. You know, he's kind of lost in the mix sometimes is what I see. You know, and I'm, I'm not checking out every Denver game. This is from a distance. So I just, I think what we're seeing again is, is the landscape forming. They brought up Harrison Barnes in Sacramento, but they look like they are going to make a playoff push. And then, of course, John Collins down in Atlanta. He, him and Trey, they have... Their pick and roll game, it's got to be top five in the league as far as like chemistry, right? They just they just have a rhythm and a chemistry. And so that Bogdanovich uh, conch offer sheet that he actually, that Sacramento turned down, you wonder if Atlanta really expected uh, Sacramento to not match it because what it did in turn was it they basically can't keep John Collins. So you wonder, despite him being such a, an important part of their offense and their team, if you got to get you got to flip him for something before he leaves for nothing. I think we'll have a lot more trade talk moving forward. 
All right, before I wrap up, I want to speak on something that I had brought up in yesterday's episode, DeAndre Ayton versus Carl Anthony Towns. It's not a thing. I brought it up. I, I just compared two first-round picks, two number-one pick centers of the last you know, five or six years. They're still trying to find their way. First off, I want to say, I'm talking basketball here. We all know what Towns has dealt with this last year, and it's crazy. You you wonder if, I mean, his his family, his genes, like, it, it is if he's willing to be studied. Because if you don't know what I'm talking about, his cat, he lost his mother to COVID. And then later it was reported that he had lost, I believe, six family members to COVID. And he just got over it where he said that it was he was gravely ill with it. And so you just you wonder if there's something in his genes, in his genetics that makes him more susceptible and the knowledge is power if he's willing, you know. Anyway, um, so, yeah, man, I, I'm not here to pick on Towns because I have in the past. Right. He's he, he's such a talent. He's frustrated me. But just keeping it strictly basketball. You know, I know that, a, that probably a lot of you would want to push back on that statement that I'm, I'd take Aiton over Towns moving forward, moving forward, not in a playoff series right now today, but just moving forward for the next five years. Here's the thing. Towns puts up godly numbers, right? And everybody tends to hold him in the tier one of centers around the league. But you look at, let's look at like Anthony Davis in New Orleans, you know, Embiid, Jokic. If you put any of those guys on these Minnesota teams, I think they're dragging them at least to the playoffs, right? The only time that Cat sniffed the playoffs was when Jimmy Butler held a gun to their heads, right? Like he he dragged them to the playoffs. I'm just I, I'm just saying the proof is in the pudding. If Towns was that good, why is Minnesota so bad all the time, right? And Aiton, you can't just look at the numbers. Aiton is playing a role on a team with a lot of other options. And if he was in that role, I'm not, I'm not saying he could carry him. I'm just saying moving forward, I think that Aiton is more able to play a role and fit in on a good team where Towns kind of needs the ball because he's kind of one-dimensional. Anyway, that, that's me explaining my take on that moving forward. I know sometimes, sometimes I got to trigger y'all and, and, and get y'all fired up. What I'm going to do moving forward, though, is I'd like to answer a question every episode kind of like a mailbag thing. And how you can get at me is on Twitter, Uncle Alchemy. I will go through them and try to get to a question per episode so we can have a little bit of interaction and back and forth. As always, the Hezzy is brought to you by basketballgods.net. We're getting up and running there, and we're going to have a lot of content from some NBA insiders and different smart minds around basketball here soon so be sure to check out basketballgods.net because that's who is bringing you this podcast that's why i'm doing it y'all have a good weekend i'm out y'all